Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Today's guest is almost always the funniest person on screen, especially when she's playing Kelly on HBO's Insecure. Well, did he hit you? No. Okay, I like Lawrence, but I will go ape on that nigga. Okay, does he have a car? Kelly, I know he has a car. You know what? I'm going to fuck that up first. He did not hit me. Okay, we're, we're, we're just going through this, like, really rough patch. You're I don't pregnant. Know. I knew it. I bet Tiffany you would slip up. And as much as I need that $100, I'm not trying. I'm not pregnant. Okay, and, you know, I, I'm, uh, it's, I'm tripping. It's fine. I don't even trip. You know, why you get me all upset? For no, for no reason. I'm sorry for making this about me. Yeah, make it about, it's my birthday. Yeah. It'll be about you if you get hit or have a baby. Do you, do you listen to yourself? All the time, I have a podcast. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Natasha Rothwell chopping it up with Issa Rae on season one of Insecure. That show is now in the middle of its fifth and final season, so I could not be more excited to have Natasha on this week's episode talk about that wild journey coming to an end and all of the other incredible things going on with her right now. This past year has been a big one for Natasha, who also co-starred in my favorite show of 2021, The White Lotus, as Belinda, the spa manager who ended up in a seriously dysfunctional relationship with Jennifer Coolidge's Tanya. We had such a great conversation about those two shows, as well as the early days of her comedy career, including how she ended up writing for Saturday Night Live and why she left after just one season. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So here's me with Natasha Rothwell. Hey, how's it going? It's good. Nice to meet you, Matt. I'm Natasha. You too. Um, so great to meet you. Um, are you still in uh, in London for uh, I, working on I Wonka? Am. That's right. That's right. Chocolate fun times. <laughs> <laughs> um, how's that going? Good, good. Yeah. It's my first sort of, uh, you know, international travel mid-pandemic, post-pandemic, yeah. pandemic-ish. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't buy the post-pandemic thing when people say that. It doesn't ring quite true yet. Nah, it doesn't either. So <laughs> we, gotta, we have this phase of the pandemic. Maybe that, that feels better. <laughs> So yeah, welcome. Um, I've really been enjoying watching this uh, final season of Insecure. It's wild that it's finally ending. How are you feeling about it? It's uh, I, it still hasn't quite settled in. Um, or I, I just yeah, I'm in <laughs> I'm in the, what they call the denial phase. Of yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I probably really won't uh, accept it to be true until the finale airs. But it's been a, quite the ride, and that's not 
you know, not just this season, I think the the series itself, it's been such an amazing journey. So I'm excited to be sort of living these final moments with the audience uh, and fans at home. It feels right. <laughs> I've been such a big fan of your character on the show for so long. I think I I don't know if you, you. know this, but I put your um your performance on on our annual list of funniest performances. Uh, one of the I think it was the Coachella year because that that oh. episode just uh just <laughs> killed me. Um, and I know it's it's one it's one you probably hear about a lot, but uh, but that was a special one. It really was. It was such a joy to do, and um, Millicent, our director, was just phenomenal. I think like just all of the the moments of playing high and getting tased. It was such a beast <laughs> of an episode. Um, and it was just fun. It was fun to do with the girls. Did you actually film at Coachella? How did that work? We were in a giant field in the Valley. So okay. no, <laughs> um, it was, it was very convincing. It was wild. I mean, this was obviously pre pandemic time. So we had, I mean, easily 300 extras and, we had, you know, a lot of the the Coachella main staples replicated, you know, pretty well uh, on this farm. And then obviously computers and things uh, came in to, to support. But yeah, a lot of people thought, thought we thought went. You actually I was just went. like, I know. I was, I was like, like, I, I, was like I, hope, <laughs> I hope you really got to see Beyonce. I was like, I know. If only that were true. If only that were true. But uh, it was so much fun. Why do the whites get to stay, huh? I know why. Because they're white, 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 and white. Hey, Kelly, we should probably just go. Oh! That's Beyonce! We came to see that bitch! Fuck it! We said Beyonce! Going back to the beginning of the show, I mean, how did this part of Kelly come to you in the first place? Because um, I know you're also a writer on the show. Did that? Did you start as a writer and then come on as cast, or was it always that you were going to do both, or how did it work? No, I, I was hired to write on the show and planned to do just that. I got into the writers' room and was so focused on the writing bit. I because it was my first, you know, scripted television series I've ever worked on, and so I knew I had a I had a lot to learn, and I wanted to, you know to pay my dues, cut my teeth, and really sort of keep uh, my eyes forward. And uh, Kelly was generated out of the room as a character, courtesy of one of my one of my dear friends, Ben Dugan, who's a writer as well. He was just like, you know, Issa's friend circle needs that friend. And so Kelly was created. And as a part of our process in the writer's room, we read all of the scripts aloud just because, you know, it's the best way to, to, to make your work better. And so Issa would assign different writers to read different characters. So one week, you know, I'm reading Lawrence and the other week I'm reading Kelly <laughs> and then the other week I'm reading Kelly and then the other week I'm reading Kelly. <laughs> and so, um, it was after I kept reading her, I was called into Issa and Prentice's office, our showrunner. And they said, we want, you know, you're playing Kelly. Like we want you to play Kelly. And I burst into tears because it was not even on my radar to even audition. I wasn't, I wouldn't even at that point, I was so scared of, you know, being out of pocket. I was just like, I, I wouldn't even have asked for an audition, honestly. And so I, when it just came, it came to me, I was just so relieved that, you know, I couldn't hide all of the aspects of who I am. And Issa was just like, you know, you just saw your Netflix special, like you're an actor, like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you're just like, 
why are you trying to hide this bit about you? So that's how it came to be. Yeah. I mean, I know you've said that you're not actually that much like Kelly in real life, but there must be some of you in there if they, if they saw you for that role, right? Well, I think, I think the way my approach to acting, I think we possess all of the potential of human emotion and we, we possess, but it, we possess it all, but it's at different levels, right? So like, my my potential to party exists within me, but it's normally at like a one and Kelly's is like at a nine. So for me, it's not necessarily turning into someone that I'm not when I play Kelly. I just calibrate the dials. You know, I turn the party in me up. I turn, you know, their reverence in me up. I true, I turn up the confidence, you know, the 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 self-possessed assuredness that she has all the way up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that that is the joy, I think, of acting for me is to be able to tap into those aspects that are me, but at levels I'm not normally accustomed. And I think over the course of the series, some of those dials have gone up and kind of stayed up, which has been really fun of just having her rub off on me uh, in terms of, you know, confidence and, you know, her ability to speak her mind and not doubt her enoughness. I feel like living in her her space has definitely sort of allowed me to recalibrate those things in myself that needed to be. Yeah, it's actually made you more confident playing her? Oh, 100%. 100%. I think that um, I'm very much an, you know, an extroverted introvert. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, that remains the same. But I think being able to go out and authentically not care what people think in a way that, <laughs> you know, I think, that has been such a revelation because I'm, you know, Kelly is miss, you know, give zero fucks and I give all of the fucks. I care so much really? <laughs> <laughs> about everyone. Is everyone okay? Is everyone, you know, like, what do they think? And just my anxiety makes that an easy go-to for me. And so to relax into who I am as an adult six years later, you know, being this character it's like, oh, okay, I can actually make the conscious choice to let let go of some of that fear and anxiety and just be confident in who I am and what I've done. So I'm grateful to her for that, for sure. Um, another uh, favorite storyline of Kelly's storyline of mine is the uh, the fake British accent, which uh, which I feel like you must be getting some some use out of that now that you're uh, in London. Are you uh, are you slipping Are you slipping into it from time to time? Or it is it is. I have to make a a, a conscious effort to not because <laughs> and I think it's also kind of a byproduct of being an Air Force brat like I moved around a ton in you know two high schools to middle schools to elementary schools and I just very quickly when you're you know a young kid reacclimating to an environment you know when we're children we learn through mimic <laughs> mimicking and so even from a young age, it would just be like, oh, this is how you guys sound here. I just came from Florida. This is Illinois. And then like, oh, I'm living in Turkey. So I'm such a quick study and I do it so often that I sometimes I don't even know that I'm doing it. Um, and it's just so, because I, I love the British accent so much. So it's also just, I'm very much an Anglophile. So it's very hard for me not to be, you know, chatting with, you know, Jim Carter on set. And I'm just like, I'm literally... <laughs> across from Mr. Downton Abbey. Yeah, himself. you I, are in Downton Abbey. <laughs> I'm in Downton Abbey and I love it. Um, but no, I'm, I'm trying to collect, uh, you know, some British slang to try out oh, when yeah. I get back. Mm. But, Any, yeah, anything we'll good you've, you've heard so far? Oh man, I just learned one earlier today, but I've already forgotten it. But 
it's so it's a shame but i being an ender like one of the west end east end just like what that means um no, I, I'm excited to uh, frustrate and annoy my friends with my version of Madonna accent when I get back. <laughs> <laughs> this is so nice. I used to be like, she wants to do what? Why? Where? How? And for what purpose? And then again, why? Yeah, I was there. I'm just glad you always believed in me. Oh, I've always believed in you, love. You've got that American entrepreneurial spirit. <laughs> What are, you, what are you doing? Um, my new beau, Darnell, is showing me Los Angeles. I faked an accent when we met, and now I have to commit. Don't make it weird. Darnell! Darling! How you doing? Please meet my dear friend, Issa D. Hi, nice to meet you. Hello! I mean, hey, I'm American. Kelly's British. So that is a fact. <laughs> what do you call those? Taco. A taco! A taco. That is so cute. So you mentioned your Netflix special, which I I think is the the first time that I saw you in anything was in in the characters, which was this really unique and incredible project that I think it was eight different comedians. Um, you can explain how it worked, but they basically just gave eight different comedians a half hour to do whatever you wanted on on screen. Is that right? That is exactly right. I think it, <laughs> it was terrifying because I was just coming off of Saturday Night Live and. Which, um, which you were a writer uh, on the show, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was a writer on the show. And I remember walking into the office at, at the Netflix office and wanting so desperately to sort of please. And I'm just like, okay, so tell me what you guys want this half hour to look like. I'll make it my own. And literally sliding a blank piece of paper across <laughs> the table, kid you not, to emphasize the point. And I was just like, I was like, so that like, and she's like, yeah, whatever you want to do, like, we love your work. We want you to feel like you have full creative control. You're an executive producer. I was in the edit. Like, I really could do whatever I wanted. And so to go from, uh, you know, pretty specific expectations from SNL to just being able to do what made me laugh and what I found interesting and funny was, it was just, it was the, it, it, to this day, I mean, just one of the most freeing experiences creatively I could have ever had. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, and that, but kind of daunting too, right? I mean, when you have a, when you have no restrictions, no parameters, how do you go about deciding what you want that to be? It is, that is, that's the right question. That's what I was asking myself. And I think that the, it, it, it was not dissimilar to my journey on SNL as a writer because, you know, my first month or so there, I was just desperately trying to write sketches that I thought would make the air. And then I, you know, was not getting anywhere. And it was one of those things where it's just like, oh, they hired me for my packet, which is me writing just what I thought was funny. And so I made a very quick pivot of just like, okay, I'm no longer going to try to sort of write and do something uh, in an effort to please someone else, I want to write and do what makes me happy. And that's when I started getting sketches on the air. And it really changed my perspective on my understanding of my own comedic voice of just like, what is my comedic voice devoid of any input? Like, what, what do I want to say? And so coming off of the SNL with those questions already being asked of myself, when I did get that blank piece of paper in front of me, I, again, like I said, my natural, <laughs> my natural inclination to people, please popped up. And I was like, no, no, no. Okay. What do I, what do I want to do? And for me, I love subversive comedy. I love levity and gravity. I love being able to um, 
play with interconnected uh, characters and worlds because I feel that feels very much like real life where you're just, and again, because I moved around so much, it's like, oh, these people are like these people. And there's on this very same day, this experience is happening. And so I wanted to play with that kind Sorry, of. Did you say that again? Oh, my watch oh. is trying to get on my interview. <laughs> my watch needs to get out. But no, I was, it was important for me to play with that uh, interconnectivity. And I just tried to go from there as sort of like my cornerstone of just like my true north of my is what is my comedic taste what is it that I'm drawn to how do I create worlds and characters that uh can replicate that feeling I get when I see something that really speaks to me so um I'm really grateful super grateful for for Netflix for giving me that chance all right what's wrong with you baby girl uh well like I was just saying I went camping this past weekend at Big Bear Lake and I woke up covered in these itchy bumps okay. I think it's like poison ivy or something all right well put your arm right under here and we're gonna get a closer look okay oh that's not poison ivy you were bitten by chiggers excuse me you were bitten by little tiny insects called chiggers that's rough yeah and you still got a couple on you now oh no should I be worried no it's just two now, if it were a group of chiggers, I'd call the police. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, the dichotomy between that and SNL. I mean, you auditioned for SNL, right, as a to be on the cast and then yeah. ended up as a, as a writer. Sort of the opposite of Insecure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, very much, very much. <laughs> you were part of that big search for a, a Black female cast member, which was this big controversy, you know, that people might remember from now almost 10 years ago. And what was your reaction to that at the time when you realized sort of what was happening and that they were doing these auditions of only black women? Was that a, did you view that as a as a good thing, as a step forward, or was it a kind of it seems complicated? I feel like um I mean the the sort of realization happened when I, I showed up to uh the theater and saw the other folks auditioning. I was like, oh, I was all black people. <laughs> I was like, okay, I see what's going on. Um but obviously I'd read the articles prior to um and I think at the time, like you said, 10 years ago, it was definitely a necessary step. I think it's a historically white institution that didn't reflect the world we live in. And so I thought it was super important that they make a deliberate effort and a conscious choice to speak to that deficit. And I think that huge credit to, you know, Keenan and Jay to say, you know, I'm, we're not going to do drag because there are funny women out there. And I think that took courage for them to do. And I think that the writer's rooms, the sets, the crews that are inclusive, that's a deliberate choice. And I think that like you, it, it, it was a, it, it became very clear to me that the effort that SNL made as, you know, <laughs> clunky as it may have been, I think it spoke to the need for other institutions to audit what their shows look like and what their rooms look like and make deliberate conscious choices to, you know, diversify and and have sort of like their baseline be inclusive, you know, casting and hiring. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, at a certain point, you must have found out that you weren't going to be in the cast, but they did want you as a writer. So how did you take how did you take that news? Were you were you excited to go be there and, and write on the show? I mean, I was I mean, it was I was shocked for sure. I think for me, what is interesting about my journey is that SNL was never on my vision board as something that I wanted by and large, because I didn't see myself reflected in the cast. And it was just like, well, I, I want to have a career in comedy. And there are many people who have figured that path out 
outside of Saturday Night Live. And so I felt that way before <laughs> the opportunity presented itself. And so then when the opportunity did present itself, it was kind of like, oh, this is this is like, I think the enormity of what it was and what it meant to my white contemporaries was just different because they had had, you know, Gilda Rat, and I did too. I mean, I love Gilda. I mean, I, I watched the show, obviously, but they were looking at her and the mental gymnastics to project themselves onto her weren't as sort of uh, involved as mine. And so um, I think to then go from not having it in my crosshairs to then having it in my cross crosshairs and then to be rejected by the guy you weren't even checking for to begin with that vote. I was just like, what? I was like, yeah. I wasn't even, you asked me out. What's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then again, to get the call uh, a month later, they're just, uh, they were just like, you know, you had one of the best written auditions and we would love to sort of meet with you to see about writing. It again was like nothing that ever was in my purview. <laughs> just like, this is something that I wanted. And then became something that I very much wanted because I think for me, it was almost as uh, important to me to have that representation reflected in the writer's room. Um, if they're going to um, really do the work and have inclusion be not just, you know, visual tokenism, they needed to have writers in the room that looked like the casts uh, that they hired. And so it was really uh, a wild experience to sort of ride the, <laughs> the roller coaster there. Um, but I learned a ton in the process, so I'm super grateful. Was there anything that you were able to get on um, in terms of sketches that you're that you were really proud of, or because I know you said it was kind of a struggle to to get stuff on the show? Yeah, I think you know I got uh, quite a bit on there in the end. But I think my proudest moment was doing uh, I wrote the monologue for Taraji P Henson by myself, and it was like a big gospel number called uh, "I Made It." And it's, you know, she talks about what her career could have been, but I made it. Thank God I made it. I could have been this, but I made it. And it was a real big swing. I kind of like, you know, the the culture of the writer's room there is, you know, when you're working overnight, you kind of sort of write with other writers and you're sort of connecting and trying to sort of like, well, we'll write the sketch together. And it was one of those nights where I was just like, I don't think anyone else is going to get this because it's very much in the diaspora of like Black American culture of just like, a gospel song and a testimony. And so I just wrote it and I remember Taraji performed the shit out of it at the table read. <laughs> and I was just like, don't cry, Natasha, don't cry. <laughs> don't cry. Doesn't mean it's going to get on. Don't cry. And the head writers at the time came over to me and just like really congratulated me. It was just like, it was a real big sort of relief. And I just am so grateful to Ra for Taraji to, be to believe in it and me at the time. Yeah. I mean, I spent so many years hustling in this business, and now I'm here. <laughs> so I guess you could say I made it. Hallelujah. Don't worry about where you are. Be grateful that you've come this far. You may not always come in first. Just remember that it could be worse. <laughs> Now 
And then, you know, obviously you only stayed there for one season. Was that, was that your decision to leave after one season or how did you? No, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Uh, no. Um, I was not renewed, but I think in that I was also sort of writing my Netflix special at the same time. And it was during a hiatus. So it was very much um, serendipitous because it was just like, oh, had that actually gone through, I couldn't have gone through with the Netflix special, which put me on Prentices and Easton's radar to take the meeting. And so I think things happen as they should. I think at the time when it's something that you you want and you want to, I think I will, I'll speak in eyes instead of use. For me, <laughs> I, I wanted to um, get good. And I felt like for me, that was more the grief of it, of just like, oh, I, it's almost, it's like by the end of the season one, you're just like, oh, I get it. You know, like, I know what this is. I know how to do this. And so it was almost. Yeah, it probably, just, probably takes that long to, uh, to, to become even a shred of comfortable. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, um, and I, I, you know, the, the, uh, Several of the, the the writers and you know head writers had reached out after they had made decisions and were just super excited for me. And then I think that's when I realized I was like, oh, like this is the beginning of something, not the end of something. And especially when you look at the <laughs> the roster of folks that have you know only spent one tour of duty at SNL, I'm in very good company. So it was an exciting time. Coming up. Natasha talks about her brilliant performance in The White Lotus and the big ways that her character changed after she landed the part. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our conversation with Natasha's Insecure co-star Amanda Seals, as well as episodes with other UCB alums like Nick Kroll and Abby Jacobson. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. 
And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Natasha Rothwell. Well, we have to talk about The White Lotus, which um, is was just <laughs> one of my absolute favorite shows of this past year. Um, and I think you're phenomenal in it. Um, and it was you. really, I think, for anyone who has just seen you on Insecure, where you're really, you know, most of what you're doing is comic relief um, or in your, your sketch work and stuff like that. You know, it was really surprising to see you in this really nuanced, dramatic performance, even in a show that is also very funny and you have funny moments. But um, what was that challenge like to take on this very something very tonally different, I think, from from other stuff that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think I found that aspect of people's surprise so shocking, but it's also, of course, because they didn't go to drama school with me. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm classically trained, and I've you know, by and large, did a ton of drama uh, and musicals and things in in school that are so antithetical to Kelly and like that world. And so a lot of people who, you know, didn't have the the opportunity to meet me in person at a bar be like, Kelly, and they see me like shrivel because I'm so <laughs> introverted. They, those people already knew I was not Kelly, but I feel like it, uh, to a greater audience, it uh, allowed people to see that Kelly is actually an acting choice <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> and yeah. not, not just an extension of who I am. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I really enjoyed getting back to sort of, you know, they say dance with the one that brung you. And so to dig into a dramatic role in a story that was so nuanced and layered and where I wasn't, I was, I played the straight man in, in the scenes against Jennifer. And I think that for me, it was such um, a fun role for that reason to be able to sort of let go of the pressure and obligation of funny. And cause I do take it very seriously. I take drama and comedy very seriously. And so um, it was sort of putting down those expectations and picking up a new set that that I haven't been able to play with in front of an audience in a long time. Yeah, uh, most of your scenes are with Jennifer Coolidge, who is also just incredible in the show. Um, were you a, were you a big fan of hers, and was that intimidating at all to uh, to go to go head to head with her in these kind of very awkward scenes in, in a lot of ways? Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, such a huge fan, and I wish I could go back and sort of send uh, a message to my younger self and be like, you're going to be playing opposite Stifler's mom. Don't freak (laughs) out. Um, Get ready. Uh, But she's such a delight as a human and is such a force um, on camera as well. And I think that it is very exciting to any actor, I think, to play against someone in which it feels like a game of tennis <laughs> where it's just like you're able to give it and, and, and give it in a way that feels cathartic. Um, Cause the opposite is, you know, playing tennis with drapes and it's just, okay, that didn't yeah. land. Let me go pick it all, you know? <laughs> so a lot more exhausting. And so um, it was just such a joy to get to know her as a person and uh, to get to know Tanya through her. What I'm hearing is you're having a lot of fatigue. Yeah. I feel like taking a nap right now. Why do you think you're so tired? I think it's because I'm so close to the floor. In general. Well, my mom passed away in June. I'm so sorry. Just dealing with all the logistics 
you know, of it all. It was just exhausting. And I'm still dealing with it. And my mother, I have her ashes, you know. I brought them here and I was, you know, I was gonna scatter them in the ocean because she loved the ocean, but I know I, I, I don't, I don't even, I, I don't even know where I'm gonna scatter them. We shot in an NBA style bubble where we were not allowed to leave the campus of the, the Four Seasons Maui, which sounds very like, well, boohoo for you, but it was shut down. So we did not have, we did not have the luxuries that come with. You weren't hanging so, out by the pool and the. <laughs> Oh, we had no cabana boys, uh, but <laughs> we had each other. We had each other. And so we had a lot of fun dinners and, and got to know each other. And yeah, I'm really grateful for the experience. Um, I was fascinated to learn that the role of Belinda was actually written for the, it was supposed to be a gay white man playing the role. Um, and then, then you got cast in it, right? Is that true? You know. <laughs> oh, I read that somewhere. Maybe that's, that's a... Uh... <laughs> I've got some bad no, information. It was I, always, I think, uh, did you see was, that? It, it was, was, there was, there was some big article that talked about that. Is that, that, that's not true? No, it's not. I mentioned okay. in an article that, and it's so funny. I, I was talking about this earlier. I'd mentioned in an article that it wasn't written expressly for a woman of color, oh, okay. but that doesn't mean that it was written for any color. It just wasn't. It just was, it was sort of written. It was, just, it was a character. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> And I think that what I find so interesting is that people took that to mean, well, if it wasn't expressly written black, it's obviously it was written for a white actor. And I think that um, is a lot of reason why castings look the way they do when they don't have to. Um, But yeah, I think on the page, there was no, um, her name is Belinda and she was referenced with the pronouns she. So we, I knew it was okay, a woman, okay. <laughs> but there was no, <laughs> there was no um, uh, sort of other identity, you know, identity attached to her. But when you have someone uh, or a character without a uh, sort of cultural identity baked into the role, when you cast it, then that's inherently put on it. And so by being cast as Belinda, it, Changed changes the words on the page when you have someone who looks like me in a servile position in a mostly homogenous environment. And so it elevates the language and makes some things really subtextual that were text and conversely things that were text subtextual. So um, it was really cool to sort of discover who she is once I would put her on. And um, a lot of that sort of process of understanding who she is and her function in the show was born out of conversations I had with Mike, you know, even before I said yes to the character, I was like, let me talk to this guy because it means something for someone who looks like me to be playing this. Let's have the conversation. And he was so on board and so supportive and was just an amazing sort of partner in, in sort of building who she is. What were those things that you wanted to make sure that were there, you know, with the character in those, in those conversations with, with Mike White? Well, yeah, I think my, my biggest fear is that you have a character, like I said, uh, a woman of color in a servile position, the tropes and the potential pitfalls of tropes um, were there and not on the page. What I mean is just like in the perception of just my playing the part. And so I wanted to get ahead of that and sort of my approach and really giving her moments where we could see her agency and that she's not just, you know, the magical Negro there to solve, you know, Tanya's problems 
that she, she has a passion for, you know, mental health and physical health and spiritual health. And that's a part of who she is and grounding her wants and needs and showing sort of the emotional effect when those are denied, showing her sort of empathetic connection to Tanya allows us to see her as a character and not a caricature. And I think that um, when presented with a role like this, that's why I, you know, jumped at the chance to be able to subvert those expectations where you see someone, you know, working at a resort, uh, one of the only sort of black people that you see, um, and yet her agency and control is present, even though she can't put words to it always. And we see that she has an empathetic lens when it comes to Tanya. So it doesn't come from just well, of course she wants to go on a boat ride and bury her mom's ashes and all you know, put her on. Like it doesn't, we don't just have that moment without supporting it with that emotional connection that they had during her first massage. And so we get to see sort of the empathetic reasons of her why. Whereas I think in this sort of, you know, tropey caricature um, roles that are of this ilk, don't have the why. It's just assumed that their why is because they're less than or they, don't deserve to have dreams or aspire. Um, and I think in that sort of nuance that, you know, Mike brilliantly found with, with Belinda, it allowed uh, her to be this multifaceted, nuanced character in a role that is familiar. And I think juxtaposing those things is what really sets it apart and made me say yes. <laughs> yeah. One of those moments of agency that you mentioned, I think, is that eye roll that you uh, that you give to to Rachel in the in the finale. Um, was that something that was on the page or something that you just did in the, in the moment? Or what were you trying to communicate with that? Yeah, there was nothing on the page in that moment. But I think as, you know, walking through the world as a Black woman, um, there are masks that we have to wear. And I think it is an expression of, you know, uh, class and privilege to not have to do that. And I think, you know, that is a moment where we see Belinda's mask down, where she's just unable to hide how she's really feeling. And I think for the audience, they're perceptive. And I think some would argue, well, she, we kind of know what she's feeling the whole time. But when you are uh, living your life from a place of privilege, you don't see it. So in that moment, Rachel is so self-absorbed and unable to see anything <laughs> outside of herself in that moment that it's one of those, those times where, you know, oh, if she can't see it, I need to say it because I'm not going to, I don't, I don't have it in me to, to sit through this. And so that's when she's just like, you want my advice? I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so uh, I think that it was just sort of a, a well-earned moment for Belinda for sure. Could I live with myself if I made this Faustian bargain where I just ended up being someone's arm candy for the rest of my life? You want my advice? I'm all out. I have to ask you about the the envelope of cash that uh, that Tanya gives Belinda at the end because I feel like that could either be seen as a gift or an insult depending on your perspective, and I'm I'm curious how you viewed it uh, as as the character. It doesn't have to be uh, one or the other. I think it's both. <laughs> yeah. It's an, yeah. It's an insulting gift. You know, I think <laughs> it is uh, less than what she was promised and not enough to do what she wants to do. And of course she takes it. Some people, I, it's so interesting that, you know, social media people are just like, you know, did she take it? Does it, you know, how much was in that envelope? Like what's going on? You know, like, 
and even I had conversations with Mike and the props department because the envelope was really much thicker than it was in the tape. And I was just like, if it's too thick, it's going to suggest that she made good on her promise. And we want to make sure that that, that that's not no, what that's happened. A, that's definitely not how I took it. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's both insulting and I think it's a gift. And I think it's painful for Belinda to take it because she needs it. And I think that um, there's sort of a, a, a lot of blood swallowed in that moment because she can't just push the envelope back and say, go fuck yourself. Because, you know... Tanya might be back at, you know, the White Lotus again, and she has to smile and go to dinner. And, and so there's a lot of obligation attached to, you know, uh, privilege and class. And I think that in that moment, she was obliged to take it. It seems like there's going to be more seasons or another season, but maybe in a different setting with a different cast. Do you, is it something that you could be involved in? Or do you know that you're definitely not going to be involved in? Or I don't know. I know. I'm Jon Snow. I know nothing. Um, <laughs> I know it was announced that there's a season two, which is super exciting. Um, and I honestly can't wait to watch. And I know Jennifer is going to be in that. That was announced as well. But again, I'm, I'm so far away from the epicenter of decision making. But um, I, I love Mike and I love the crew and the cast so much. And I mean, if, if Belinda ever circled back around, I'd jump at the opportunity. But I don't think that's that's the plan. But I think just the opportunity to explore these dynamics in another location, I think is exciting. So I'm, I'm tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, between this and, and Insecure, you know, you obviously have been doing a lot with HBO. I, I saw that you were at some point developing your own show with HBO. Is that still in the works or is there something that we can look forward to there? We have two shows in development at HBO, which is super exciting. Um, and more to come on that soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, there's, you know, you know, with these things, it's always kind of like you, you can't even talk about it until it's already aired kind of thing. But um, I'm really excited about those two projects. And then uh, I also recently signed a deal at Disney, uh, ABC Disney, uh, that, that huge family, which is super exciting and, and working on a show uh, to come there as well. And so <laughs> got a lot going I on. I got a lot going on. I'm just trying to make the most of this this moment. And I'm just so grateful to be in this position. So it's exciting to um, to see what's next. Um, so before we get to the end here, I want to do our our speed round, which is called the first laugh. So I'm going to ask you about some some firsts in your in your comedy career. Ooh, okay. So let's start way back. The first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard uh, as a kid growing up. Um, what's something that you remember just really, really making you laugh um, early on? Oh, man. I mean, there's so many, but uh, what just came to mind was Sinbad. <laughs> uh, I remember he has a bit in one of his early stand-ups of his dog <laughs> growing up was really sick and just wanted to kill itself. And so he did it. He just did an impression of his dog who, <laughs> who was on this armchair that couldn't run or any, that was just kind of had to stay there. And his grandmother would just listen to the TV too loud. And this dog was just like, kill me, please. And I was super young because, I mean, Sinbad is like, you know, clean comedy. So I was super young. And my parents were like, well, you can watch this. There's no swear words in it. Um, and I just, that every time I would just put in that little VHS, rewind, like fast forward <laughs> to that moment. And he's just so animated of just like, oh, he's great. so good. So good. Um, do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny? Very young. I was always, I, I think I just, the exact moment, uh, I'm one of four. So I have two sisters and a brother. 
and we were a military family. And so every, you know, we entertained ourselves endlessly, you know, long road trips from, you know, different places we lived. And, you know, I used comedy as currency in school because, you know, everyone loves the funny kid and it's hard to pinpoint just one moment, but I would say just from a very, very young age, when I, when I knew if I could do something to cause like a physical reaction in someone else, and it was just words or action, like I was just obsessed with that power. So I, uh, fortunately slash unfortunately (laughs) figured that out very early. Um, we didn't get to talk too much about the very uh, beginnings of your comedy career. I know you did, you started, um, at, uh, UCB and did stuff there. Um, do you remember the very first time you performed uh, either improv or sketch uh, in front of an audience and what that was like? Um, it actually happened when I was in college. I started improv in college with a group called Erasable Inc. at University of Maryland. And um, just, I, there's something so magical about improv. And mind you, prior to that, you know, in high school, they, we did improv exercises, but this was my first time being a part of like a group. Um, and we would play the, our library was called McKeldon library and there was the steps and it was outdoors. And every Friday at 1 PM, we would perform. And I just felt like a rock star. I was just like, just and comedy nerds were populated in the audience. It wasn't like, you know, throngs and throngs of people, but I just loved not having a script and being intuitive and having a group of people where we would just be in this mind meld of anticipating what they were going to say and being on board with the games that, you know, came out in the scenes. And at the time we were doing a mix of long form and short form and quickly abandoned short form and just started doing long form. But I was with them for the time I was there. And it was just a way of storytelling that felt so organic and natural to me um, and made sense of how I created because I, you know, even before then would always do what I then became to understand it's just like improvising as I write or just like talking things out loud. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is that in real time. So yeah. University of Maryland, McKelvin steps. <laughs> we'll never forget it. <laughs> Do you have a particularly memorable audition story? Uh, something that you either uh, went well or didn't go well or, or something that you got or didn't get, it could be anything. Ooh, it happened in high school. Um, I was auditioning for the music man. No big deal. Um, <laughs> And I, to this day, singing terrifies me, but I love to do it. I was in a karaoke league for years. Like I love the karaoke aspect because it's low, low stakes. So I clam up and I say this in London as I'm shooting a musical. So don't tell the director, Um, (laughs) but it is, uh, it's something that it gives at the time gave me great anxiety to the point where I didn't know how to work through it. And so I decided to learn my song in sign language. Also, by and large, because my best friend at the time was hearing impaired. And so I had already been learning ASL just at, for my own edification. And so I was just like, well, what's the practical use for this knowledge? If not with her, I'm going to learn this whole song in ASL. But my nerves did what they do and got the better of me. And halfway through, <laughs> I wouldn't even say that's generous, a quarter of the way into the audition, I blanked on the signs. But I, my hands were in the air and I'd already been committed. So I just did what can best be described as an interpretive dance. Um, <laughs> it was so mortifying. Uh, and in high school, it's the kind of high school's audi- audition where like you have to leave through the lobby and all the other like, you know, auditionees are waiting to, <laughs> to go in. And I had left the stage and gone through and I'm just in tears. And um, I got the chorus, which is very exciting. So <laughs> yeah, um, cor- Chorus is important, you know? 
course is important, but I just, oh, I can just see, that's the other thing too. I was looking at my director in her eyes, which she tell you not to do, but I was, I was looking for a life raft. And so I was just kind of like doing that, but thank God I didn't stop. <laughs> do you have a story about meeting a, uh, a comedy hero? Maybe the, the first time that you met someone uh, who, who you really looked up to in the, in the comedy world and, and how it went. Goodness, the first time I met a comedy hero. I mean, being at SNL during season 40 was just an embarrassment of riches as far as that's concerned. Um, I'll tell you this anecdote. So the SNL 40th party is sort of like legendary and everyone's oh, yeah. talked about it. I was there and I lived the tale. tale. Um, I'm so jealous. I'm, I mean, I still can't be- quite believe it's real, but they're pictures, so I know it happened. Uh, <laughs> but um, this is the party in which I physically ran into Prince. And that was not, (laughs) I will say that was not the highlight. The highlight was um, after that moment of physically running into Prince, I, and I, again, I said I was an extroverted introvert. I like collapsed in on myself and was just like, okay, my only way to get through this night is to like grab a glass of champagne and go to the dance floor because there's this pocket of just like uh, non celebrities <laughs> where we were just kind of like, let's just listen to Questlove spin and the, just the non celebrity section. Yes. So I Which must have been like, pretty I, small. I mean, because it was mostly celebrities, right? It was very small. So it was basically all of the freshman writers. We kind of just like, you know, got to the dance floor. And it's the kind of thing when you've been on a dance floor and you can sort of sit someone like dancing with you. And I was just like, you know, feeling the vibe. And I turned around and it's Bill Murray. <laughs> <laughs> And it's one of those things where I was just like, fuck it. And so we just kind of like danced with each other as Quest oh Love is playing. <laughs> and, I, and he's such a hero of mine. Like, not even just his body of work, but like, he doesn't even have like a, eight, like cell phones or ages. Like, he's just such a, a man unto himself. And he could tell that I was just like screaming <laughs> with joy from my eyes. And <laughs> after the dance, he sort of like patted me on the shoulder. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, but he was just cool because for him to be hanging out with like all of the like, you know, non-celebrities being like, I'm not, he was just not about that schmooziness. He was just like, I love this song. So I'm going to dance. And so we danced. <laughs> my, uh, my big SNL 40 uh, mystery that I've been, that I've always been trying to solve is what happened with Eddie Murphy? Cause he was, I, he, he didn't perform comedy. He just kind of did a little short speech. And do you have, do you have any insight into to what happened there? Oh man, I was not in the room where it happened. <laughs> I was definitely not in the room where it happened. My best guess, I, I mean, I honestly don't know. There was so that that event of just the actual show and then the after party were just such massive productions. So I can't even begin to to think of why that was the way it was. But I was just glad he was there. I got to see him in real life and. Um, yeah, it was just, it was wild. It was wild. That I is, physically yeah. bumped into Beyonce. Oh my that God. Also, <laughs> I, la- I literally laughed because I didn't know what to say uh, to her. I was, it was just a <laughs> lot. It was the whole night was just like, there's these moments I'll have where I'm just like, um, Paris Hilton cut in front of me at the bar. That's crazy. Like, who's that? Or like, <laughs> I went to this other ante room to like catch my breath and it's just like Steve Martin and you know Eddie Murphy just chatting with their like family and I was just like this is a fever dream that I hope is real but yeah I don't know how you top yeah. that 
<laughs> you don't, the fi- you don't. SNL 50. You, maybe you can get the invite to that. Maybe, maybe. I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you'll be hosting by then. Yeah, I would not say no. We'll yeah, see. <laughs> I would like to. See, I would like to see it. Um, so finally, before we go, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out other comedians or comedy that you're enjoying right now. So, what's the last mm. piece of comedy that that really made you laugh that you want to shout out? Ooh, I'm obsessed with Sex Education oh, uh, on Netflix. So good, so good. It is just, it's just great, and specifically. Uh, I think it was in this current season, episode three, where sex killed the cat. It's just, it's just smart and funny and necessary. I think just having like frank and honest discussions about sex. Well, I was a high school theater teacher in the Bronx for four years. So a, a huge part of my responsibility was like keeping kids off each other, like sexually to be like, okay, keep it in your pants, go over there. Um, and so I just appreciated that kind of just like open and honest uh, conversation. And it's just, funny and dark so that made me laugh a ton inside job also on netflix anime i do a ton of animation i think that's super smart and funny um female driven and led uh which is super smart um there's so much i really i think that that also is what is exciting about this moment in film and television is just the number of platforms just demand more content. And so more opportunities from different creators being able to produce and do things. So um, yeah, it's an exciting time, but uh, excited about those things. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm just such a big fan of yours and um, oh, thank you. good luck with Wonka. I hope you learn more British slang. Um, I hope. Uh, I did too, mate. I hope so. <laughs> um thank you so much and uh yeah good luck with everything um i'm excited to see all of those uh mysterious shows you have coming up yes i'm excited for you as well thank you so much take care you too bye all right thank you so much to natasha rothwell for joining me on today's show you can catch new episodes of insecure every sunday night at 10 p.m on hbo And both that show and The White Lotus are available to stream on HBO Max. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 